0: You boys, what a game! Welcome to episode fifty or episode two of the Toronto Maple Leafs Hot Stove Podcast, depending on how you want to conceptualize it. I'm Nick Ashburn here with Anthony Petrielli. When we relaunched last week, uh, it was at a point in the season where the Maple Leafs were rolling, and we kind of evaluated the whole Brad living experience thus far. In between recordings, if we do this weekly, obviously things are going to happen each week, but it has felt like a particularly eventful couple of games the Maple Leafs have played, starting with Columbus, the win at home against the Pittsburgh Penguins with Kyle Dubas in town, uh, and then most recently, a bit of an odd loss against the New York Rangers. So we're going to go through it a little bit chronologically. I'm not sure we're going to do this every single week, but like I said, it's just been a weirdly eventful time for the Maple Leafs from a news cycle perspective. So, Anthony, let's start with this Blue Jackets game. What do you make of a game where the team is embarrassed, to be frank? And, you know, there's some Ilya Samsonov goofiness thrown into the mix there. But going down 5-0 against the Columbus Blue Jackets at home is a pretty pathetic result. And then having this miraculous comeback. Do you come away from that game feeling encouraged about the offensive firepower of the team and how they're, quote-unquote, like, not out of any game? Or do you come out of saying the fact they got themselves in that position in the first place is ridiculous and this is not, there's nothing to be celebrated in this?
1: Uh I mean, it's always somewhere kind of in between, right? Like, there's, um I wouldn't go so far as to say there's, like, nothing to celebrate. I mean, there's something to be said of coming back and, and getting a point out of it. Like, that's not nothing. And you've seen, you know, teams have nights all around where they don't push back and, you know, they mail it in and, you know, they have tougher situations. So, you know, to some degree, I guess some level of credit goes to them for fighting back. But like, obviously, they shouldn't be in that situation. I think the biggest thing I took away from that, that game was really, I just, I think that they I think that they give teams easy goals, right? Like the first two goals of that game were easy goals in the sense that the Leafs had the puck in the D zone, like it was on their stick and they didn't break out cleanly. And Columbus, who's obviously not that good, shoved it down their throat. And it's just like, those are the kinds of things when you look at their, you know, advanced numbers at five on five, like territorially, they're very like league average. Um, to like slightly below water to slightly above water. And often I just look at it and say like, they don't break out cleanly, right? Like the the winger, like like we've talked about Tyler Rattuzzi and he's received a lot of attention because his advanced numbers are really good no matter who he's played with, right? He's kind of propped guys up. But if you watch him on the breakout, like often what he's doing, he's just flipping the puck out, right? Like he's just lofting it up in the air and getting it out of the zone. Like it's not because they're doing anything clean. And I just, I don't think they have, they obviously need at least one defenseman, maybe two. I think it's one, and then everything kind of domino effects from there. And, and to me, like, that's just an example. Like, they just, they don't do enough easy things back there.
0: Yeah, I, also, when they had Wall playing well, like, a lot of these things are minimized when you get, Good goaltender, and that's often the case, right? Yeah. Like coaching mistakes, player mistakes across the board. When you're getting high quality goaltending, things don't look as bad. And then when you get someone in there like Samsonov, who you know is having confidence issues, technique issues, like there's just a lot going on with him. And whenever you make that mistake, you feel like there's a really good chance it's going to hurt you. Like a, what, I don't know what you want to call it, like a 50% chance that a bad turnover is going to become a goal. It really sort of changes the calculus on how tightly you need to play to give yourself a good chance. And I'm not letting them off the hook because Columbus is a bad team and they didn't play well enough and they were loose with the puck. Like all these criticisms have been lofted at the least like many, many times realistically this year and in previous seasons as well but when you have someone back there who is just not really functioning to be honest it's like there's a difference between below average and not really functioning as an NHL goalie and Samsonov has been there for a lot of this year and he was in this game as well and it wasn't all his fault to be sure but it just it puts under the microscope these issues that we know the Maple Leafs have, and I think it's easy to forget about them for a second when Wool is in there giving them good goaltending, or even more recently Martin Jones. To be honest,
1: Nealander had a quote after the game where where he was talking about it, and he said he said like, we know we can score five, like like I don't think anyone's doubting it. Like they like they know, right? Like, like there's you know, I mean, you can be happy that like they turned it on and they came back, but I don't think there's any sort of declaration there of their firepower or it's um, nothing new yeah everyone
0: knows that that's a conceivable outcome for them yeah they can score a bunch of goals
1: yeah I think the bigger thing is just like why can't you snuff the game out and and like and it doesn't necessarily have to come from the forwards that's that's what I mean like why can't you just you know give Columbus nothing and then bide your time until the forwards score because you know that they're going to score at some point they're going to score especially against Columbus but they, you know, they just uh when the game has to come from the other end of the ice, as opposed to the forwards driving it, which they ended up doing in the third to come back. It's uh I just I don't think there's enough there right now. I don't think anyone thinks there's enough there.
0: Yeah, I mean, this team has been good at erasing deficits, but very poor at holding leads. And that is what you'd expect from a team where the majority of the talent is up front, which again, is not new. And now in the next game, when you had the the Kyle Dubas return, you kind of did get that where they put the the foot on the throat of another team which is something they have not done really all season long and like if you looked at whatever the box score score of that game and you would say oh well jones you know made 38 saves like he really shut the door on them but it was a game it kind of reminded me of the vancouver game to be honest where the other team got quite a few shots but it didn't feel like the penguins are in the game really from the beginning and in the absence of Austin Matthews, who has been just on one of his trademark heaters recently, like I think it, it'd be hard—you'd be hard-pressed to say that wasn't the most impressive win of the season. I don't know whether you want to give it the like the narrative juice or not. I think that the beauty's in the eye of the beholder over how much it matters to beat Dubis when he comes back to the building. Uh, I don't know if there are that many fans who are like super team Shanahan and want to see Dubas faceplant. Maybe there are. I think, you know, there's a wide variety of opinion on him. But when you look at the game itself, that has to be one of the better efforts for a team that has sort of continually been playing these scrappy one goal games and has been unable to put teams away and give them no hope. And that's exactly what they did, at least for one night.
1: Yeah, and then we just talked about, you know, the defense kind of, you know, shutting things down and and moving the puck up ice and it not really happening for two of the three periods for that Columbus game until the forwards turned it on. Like that game was the exact opposite. That was the forwards just came out, guns blade. It felt like they could create whenever they wanted to, right? Like whenever they had the puck, it felt dangerous, basically. Anytime that they crossed center, it was like, all right, I think these guys can, can do something. I mean, the Leafs could have had 10 goals that game. I think they could have had 12 goals that game. Like they had, they had a lot of chances they didn't score on too. Like it wasn't, and like, like quality, really good chances. And I like, I mean, that's going to be the case for every NHL game. You're not going to score on every quality chance, but it wasn't like, it wasn't even like the Rangers game that just happened where pucks were going in off stick or you know bodies, and it was tight and and a couple bounces here or there. It was like it felt like the Leafs could score any single time they wanted to. And you know, I kind of remarked, I, I wrote this week, and I, I think it's true. It just that looked to me for, for Pittsburgh that looked to me like every big game the Leafs pretty much every big game the Leafs played under Dubas like they just came out and they got they they weren't ready they, they didn't step up to the occasion I think we've seen that from this Leafs team so many times and it just like it felt familiar and then on, on the Leafs side like you mentioned no Matthews um I think there's a bit of a weird thing, especially now with this team, because there's a little bit more scoring depth and talent than previous years, I would call it, right? Like we saw like Max Domi moves up, has a three point night, looks good. Like he's definitely not out of place playing alongside, alongside skilled players. Like he can rip the pucks around. He's an excellent passer. If you give him a chance, like, you know, that was a no doubter, that goal, like watching it, you're like, all right, like this is a confident finish. Right. As opposed to like years past where guys would break in and I would barely bat an eyelash because you just knew if it wasn't one of the big four or maybe Jason Spezza, like nothing, like nothing was happening. Um, so all that to say is like I'm almost in a weird spot with them sometimes where not not that I want to see Matthews in particular miss games, but like where I almost want to look at them and say like, oh, if like player X of like the big four or whatever misses a game or two it forces them to do things in the lineup that they're otherwise not doing. AKA in this case, moving up max Domi, but any number of like factors, I mean, even you saw like Noah Gregor get rewarded when Matthew Nyes goes out, like, like they almost need those things to happen to show the coaching staff that like, maybe there's a little bit more here.
0: Yeah. I mean, we talked about max Domi and trust on the last episode and we're both kind of thinking, you know, this is a guy who does have a lot to offer, especially on the playmaking side of the puck. And he is no defensive maestro. Everyone can agree on that. But yeah. you know, he should be playing more than you know, 10 minutes and 30 seconds a night or whatever his average has been when he's on the third line. He shouldn't be effectively the fourth line center. And it's possible these opportunities give him a chance. Although over these these games, he did have some nasty turnovers too. Like you can see yeah. Sheldon Keith's perspective. Like it's understandable. 100%. I think weirdly, the best role for Domi might be like a top. Six even top line player on a team that sucks. Like, I think that his role with the Blackhawks last year is might actually be the perfect role for him where he gets a bunch of power play time, he gets a bunch of offensive zone time, and he gets if he wants the minutes. If he wants the minutes. But they're they're figuring it out with him. And I don't know if it's a foregone conclusion that this isn't a long-term thing. You you kind of think that there might be a change at the deadline where you're looking at a third line center, but there's also enough defense issues to worry about that they might not feel like they have the ammunition to go and change that up, and we'll see where Domi, Robertson, Yarncroke is in a couple weeks, a couple months.
1: No, I mean, I wouldn't I wouldn't be looking... Um, like, I would much rather upgrade with another veteran on the left wing there in, Robert, in place of Robertson more so than I would look to acquire... A th- like, last year in the playoffs, Domi played with Sagan and Marchment, and that line was good, like... Like he like let, I'm pretty sure he led them in scoring in the second round. Like he had like eight points in that series um, going into the conference finals, like in, in a specific role, he's a good player at what he does. Uh, so like, to me, I, I more of look at like, and Robertson, like he, like he's starting to really more come back down to earth to me. I mean, he has come back down to earth and he really struggled against the Rangers. Like he could not get the puck out at all. Um, And the difference is at least Domi is like somewhat productive. But then going back to the injury point, it's like the thing I look at and say is how did it, how, how did it take Matthews last second coming out of the lineup for Domi and Marner to like touch the ice together? I mean, those are, those are OHL line mates. Like they lit the OHL up together and I get that it's junior, but I mean, most people, (laughs) If they have players with a history of doing crazy things together, give them a little bit of time together <laughs> when they're reunited to see what happens. Like I like it shouldn't take that to get that happening. And you're gonna say, well, like, are you gonna drop Marner down? Yeah, drop them. Like run three really good lines. Like, why is that a problem? I just I don't think that they explore enough of those combos. It's always very much geared towards loading up the top guys together and I get it it's because like they're really good and and the Leafs are obviously in a comfortable playoff position I just think when you like look at it come playoff time or even even yesterday against the Rangers and, and which was honestly I thought like a fairly even matchup like I don't think the Rangers tilted them I think the Rangers I mean the Rangers had three goals off Leafs and they were up four. I mean, the, f- four yeah, two. the first goal yeah.
0: was absolutely nutty, and then some of yeah. the other goals are the type of goals that happen. But, but it's just like to have them clustered like that is just unusual.
1: Yeah. But I think the Leafs could have created more by and large, and I think a potential avenue for them to do that would have been three lines, and that, like that Domi line. To your point, like they were terrible. Oh, brutal. right, like I, awful.
0: Robertson is interesting because there's just there's moments of like brilliance with him. Cause his shot is so yeah. good and he can get to the right spot. Like he's got good instincts for st- scoring. He can get to the right spot and he can change a game in a flat. Like he can be a little bit of a game breaker, but then on a, like a shift to shift basis, like it's easy to watch five or six shifts with Roberts in a row where he does absolutely nothing. And he gives up the puck and he doesn't cover well in his own zone and he doesn't, and he loses all the puck battles and it, that's a difficult player for a coach to have patience with, even though maybe, you know, once in a while having him play bigger more minutes would probably pay off. It'd be interesting to see more of him on the second power play, which we're going to talk about later in the show, but it's, he's a tough one for sure.
1: For so for Robertson, for me, it's not like, I'm not giving up on him. I would give him as much ice time and opportunity up until a certain point in the year as possible. Like it's good reps for him. It's good development. When I look at him, I I look back to Vegas last year. So they had Pavel Dorfiev, who came in, rookie, like he was scoring for them. He scored some big goals for them down the stretch of the regular season. He did not play in the playoffs. Like he was not a factor for them in the playoffs. Like Once playoffs came around, it was veterans. It was guys that were older, guys that are more developed physically. Like the playoffs, we know this. The playoffs is like it's... It's a man's game. Like that's like you need much like teams that win are generally old, older, I should say not old, but older, more established, like they're getting led by guys and usually they're late 20s. Like it's really hard for rookies to be impactful. Now you like kind of compound that and they already have one in Matthew Nyes. And now you're going to like compound that with not just another rookie, but a guy who's, you know, he's on the smaller and maybe not as like physically strong side. Like, I just, I don't think you can go into the playoffs with two rookies in your top nine and like consider that serious. Like, I don't th- I don't think that's a serious I mean, approach. to the. I playoffs. think
0: Nice is a bit of an exception to that just because he's so physically developed that like yeah. he, you don't necessarily conceive him the way you would most rookies. Uh, he's not but- physically
1: a rookie, just like some of the things he does on the ice. You're like rookie. Like, that's like a guy, like a oh, young yeah. guy learning the league. <laughs>
0: For sure. And that's what some of the next few months are about. Like, people forget yeah. how few reps Nyes has had because he feels like such an established part of this team coming in. Last year. A couple of things I want to get to before we have a guest on the show. I did a very poor job. I should have promoted that off the top. We have a fantastic (laughs) guest coming was Andrew Brewer is a longtime um, uh, assistant coach of the Maple Leafs been a video coach with Team Canada at the juniors and World Championships level video coach in Detroit and Florida founder of 200 foot coaching someone who knows what he's talking about uh, more than more than we do, which is kind of the goal with the hosts a lot of the time. We're going to have him on, but a couple of things I want to touch on before we do is the return of Timothy Lilligren, for one. It's at the moment of his injury, this felt like a huge deal. He was really solidifying himself in the top four. He was playing on both the penalty kill and the power play. Like He felt like really a glue component of this team. And since then, they have gotten some surprising performances from some of these depth defensemen have made that injury hurt a little bit less than it might have. Also, you know, a guy who's on the right side, which is something that they've lacked. They have a lot of left-handed defensemen, someone they can play with Riley, which they did in the Rangers game, sort of a mid-game switch, someone they can play with McCabe as well. I think that the first couple of games back, it would be hard to say that he has made a massive impact. In theory, he's someone who plays kind of a quiet game anyway and sort of fits in where you want him, provides a little bit of offensive spark. Like He's the type of player that, in theory is what they need to elevate this defense core, maybe not to a top of the league type of level, but to a more satisfactory level. In the first couple of games, I don't know about you. I didn't see anything where I, where I thought, okay, Lilligren is back and now everything has changed and the Leafs are in good spot.
1: No, I mean they still need another defenseman, uh like regardless, but I think Lilligren helps them. Like he's part of the solution. He's not part of the problem. I think people are just kind of down on him because it feels like he's been around forever and he maybe hasn't you know become this like really impactful player but it's easy to forget one he's 24 which is like unless you're of the kale mccarr like Miro Heiskinen category of defenseman which he never was going to be like that's still relatively young for a developing defensemen the second part is is he hasn't played that much in the league like you kind of forget it i mean honestly when i looked at it i was like really i thought it was going to be higher He's only played 153 games in the league like you'll hear most people say, defenseman takes 300 games. Like he's halfway to that point. So, and in a
0: small, smallish role in some of those games, too. Like he didn't always have Keith's trust when he came in from day one. Like it's only more yeah. recently that he's playing in the kind of significant role that is going to accelerate his development. I'm yeah. not, lo- I'm not low on L- Lilligren by any means. I think that there might have been some fans who thought, okay, he gets back and everything, you know, gets Giordano, no. comes back later, falls into place. I just don't think that's where we are.
1: No, I think uh, I think that they're very much trying to sort through. I think they have an, like I think they have more than six realistic options that they can go through. I think they're. it's going to take some time to kind of sort out how it falls into place. Like we saw Lagasin go in and Benoit come out. Like personally, I disagree with that. I would I would run with Benoit over Lagasin. I know that they've I get why they went with Lagasin first. He's generally played more than Benoit. I think he's a better fill-in in in a top four spot if they needed to, like if it was desperate enough to go down that route. I just, I personally think Benoit offers more on that third pairing, especially in a game last night um, against the Rangers where it was really physical at the start. Like, you know, not that Lagunson's won't stand up for himself. Like he got run over by Goodrow to keep a puck in, which I thought was actually really commendable. And he was definitely taking his fair share of runs at guys. I just think, Benoit is a bit of a like a bigger, stronger, more of a presence in that physical space, which I think is more welcome uh, in that third pairing role. Like, I think it's going to just take them some time to kind of sort out sort of the options. But I have I have thought it's nice having Lilligren just as another righty. Like they just they don't have any. And they've started they started at already to slide him in for offensive zone face offs with Riley as opposed to. I think Brody. that's a good
0: idea. That's a really good idea.
1: 100% like how many times do you see and it's not his fault but like you see Brody backhand pucks deep into the corner like it's like he gets the shovel out and just shovels it down there along the wall because what else can you do right and and Brody's not um, you know and you know he's not Roman Yossi picking the puck up on his like on the right side as a lefty and like twirling around guys like that's not his game it's an unfair spot to put him like you know Brody is not really a creator from the point at the best of times so you know just having that righty there i've noticed that a little bit better in terms of like keeping pucks in maybe offering a little bit more opportunity and then you have tim so it gives you kind of two guys to bounce off of for offensive zone face-offs and situations it's look it's going to be a work in progress i just i have a hard time taking the overall team seriously until we see what they do with the deadline
0: yeah, it's it's going to take another defenseman, probably a right-handed one, for this team to feel complete, which it doesn't okay. right now. I mean, the last thing I want to get to before we bring Andrew on is the is the Martin Jones of it all, just because he's suddenly <laughs> become. Uh, I, I would folk hero would be an exaggeration, probably a little bit strong, but just with yeah, so strong so crazy. much, him making two starts in a row, like is that the indication? Because you know Martin Jones is the guy who came into the year with he like a a good track record in a sense like he's done a fair amount in his career but in his recent years has been pretty rough and the fact that they're willing to I don't know if give the crease over hit to him would be an exaggeration but this is a guy you never expected to see make two starts in a row all season and it's already happened pretty much as soon he comes up I think the more interesting question is what does that say about where we're at with Samsonov?
1: Yeah, I was going to say, if you didn't go there, that's what I was going to say. Like, I don't think it says a ton about Martin Jones. I think it says a lot more about well.
0: He's a veteran. He's fine. Yeah,
1: I would expect him to be serviceable. But I will say, as an aside, I still think it's insane that he went through waivers. Like, I have no idea how that happened. There are, look at all of the needy teams in that. Like, it's crazy. Like, he easily should have been picked up. (laughs) Wild that it happened, but it's the Leafs' benefit. Like, it's nice to get a win on the waiver wire for once is the Toronto Maple Leaf Hockey Club. I just, yeah, for Sam someone wrote it in the comments this week on, on an article I wrote, I forget who it was or and sorry if you're listening, I'd shout your name out, but they said basically to the effect of, uh, and I thought about it a lot after I read it, they said like, this is the second time where the Leafs turn to another goalie. And I'm like, yeah, right. Like the second time where I'm like, yeah, go, go with the other guy instead of Sam Um, I just, yeah, I don't know why it's the case. I think it's, it's not a question of like talent or ability on Samsonov's side. I think it's a hundred percent between the ears. I far be it from me to break down why that's the case, but like, there's something going on on that side of things. Cause it like, he's a good goalie. Like he's a talented goalie. He's been his whole life. Like he was a first round pick for a reason and he was highly touted and he obviously washed out of Washington again not an ability not a question of ability and now he's you know came to toronto had a really good year and and it it feels like this year it's like guys lean on him a little bit meaning like the whoever the goalie's competing against with and like it his game goes south instead of getting better
0: yeah the one thing i'll say for him and it's he's becoming tough to defend is that he's the sort of goaltender because he is an athleticism guy, a bit of a chaos guy. Like when things are bad for him, they look especially bad because he's not, even when he's going well, sometimes he's not particularly sound. And so when things start to go downhill, it's easy to be like, okay, this guy is totally out of control. It's like, well, sometimes he's good when he's out of control. It's just, that's the way he's always been. That being said, I understand why they're going with Jones now. Um, and I, I don't know we'll see what happens in the weeks to come it could be a different discussion in a week but he hasn't strung together like two or three good games in a row and like that's the co- that's what you need for the coach to have confidence in you Jones has already done that like he came in he strung a couple good games together in a row which is yeah it, it's wild that that's something they've got from him they haven't got from Samsonov all year long. That's, I think, about a wrap on what we missed. Like I said, I think that's more than we're going to have most weeks. It's been a very eventful time in Toronto Maple Leafs land, and we are now going to be joined by Andrew Brewer. We're going to get into it on the Maple Leafs special teams on both the power play and the penalty kill. We are now joined by Andrew Brewer, who's going to get into it with us on the Maple Leaf special teams this is a guy who's been an assistant coach with the Maple Leafs between 2015 and 2020, a video coach with Detroit before and Florida after, and a big part of Canadian teams that won gold medals at both the juniors and world championships. He's the founder of 200 Foot Coaching and the manager of business development for Fast Mall Technologies, aka a guy who knows what he's talking about, which is the key for the purpose of today's podcast. Let's start with the power play. And it's interesting because the total numbers are quite similar to what the Maple Leafs saw last year. Like right now, they have a 25.9% conversion rate. Last season, it was 26.0. So it's almost exactly the same. But stylistically, even with the same players, it's fairly different because of the alignment we're seeing. We're now seeing Mitch Marner at the left side of the net hanging around the goal line, distributing from there instead of having what you've seen in the past with the bumper and the net front man and the 1 3 1 type of situation. First of all, Andrew, I wanted to get your take on kind of big picture philosophically. How do you feel about that alignment as opposed to the more traditional ones we've seen in the past?
2: Oh, well, first off, thanks for having me. Really excited to uh, join you guys today. And uh, from when it comes to an alignment perspective, it's a little bit of uh, bell bottoms in hockey. What's old is new. And currently the the Leafs are using a system that a lot of teams would call spread, um, where they'll have... Two players on either side of the net, a man in front of the net, and two men up top. So it looks almost like a, a five-man dice, um, where the player at the net will will also pop into the slot. Um, this really hasn't been common in the NHL in the past ten years. But uh, a big part of coaching is a little bit of cat and mouse, and we've seen it in three-on-three overtime. Um, to be honest, coaches have ruined three-on-three overtime by you know bringing tactics into three-on-three and regrouping. And you know the Leafs may be the worst at it this year with all the uh, overtime games they played. Um, maintaining possession and regrouping in the neutral zone and um, bringing tactics to it, um, but the the key piece setups we're seeing in the NHL this season, I think, are really a a trend caused by something we started to see on the penalty kill. So going back the last few years and and last uh, two years specifically with Vegas, they started using a PK setup called a diamond, um, where basically they're they're sitting their two um, players on each flank. They'll have one player that's that's playing the man up top. And they'll have one player that's kind of playing uh, a two-on-one with the net front player and that's playing with the man in the middle. And because the teams were aggressively sitting on those flank positions so much, um, teams were looking to adapt and try to take advantage of uh, players flexing away from the net. One thing we know is 85% of the goals and more going right at the net. So if teams are playing in a diamond, then it means you're probably going to have defensive players on each one of the faceoff dots and only one player at the net. So by getting into the spread look, it allows you to actually potentially have a three on one or a three on two underneath of the net. So the concept of the power play setup is to try and create that outnumbered situation at the net. And by taking advantage of the fact that instead of setting yourself up in a position with the one-timer, you know, the classic OB stem or one-time bomb, you're going to look to try and make plays from the goal line and distribute from the goal line instead of distributing coming down the half wall uh, like you may have historically seen from a Backstrom or from a Kutrov.
1: Which is interesting, too. So we saw just last week when the Leafs played the Rangers the first time and they beat them the Rangers kind of had that diamond and they left the whole middle of the ice wide open. So what did the Leafs do? They actually adjusted and Marner ended up tipping a point shot, like completely untouched. Like he could have swung a stick in a 360 and wouldn't have made contact with another body. And so you're right. Like it's like cat and mouse of like chasing, like where's the space and where's the matchup. And for like the Leafs, they often, I think we saw this a lot, especially when, when you were there, I thought teams really sagged off the point. Right. Like like Morgan Riley's not a one-time threat. He's not really a shooter in general from there. And teams really kind of like sagged off of him. Like you could easily clip a lot of video where like all four penalty killers below the top of the circle. Like, how does that kind of factor into what you're trying to put together and like form? So that's
2: actually a really good point. So there's been a lot, a lot of history between the guys that have been on the power play now with Morgan Riley, Marner, Matthews. You know, Tavares a little bit later in my time with the Leafs. But, you know, obviously Morgan was the first one there. And Morgan's biggest strength is getting the puck up the ice and getting the puck into the zone. He's the primary reason that they've had a constantly successful um, power play entry. And they're always one of the top five to top 10 teams in the NHL at power play entries. And that's always been his strength. He doesn't have the headman shot or the big bomb from the top. Um, So as you alluded to, time goes on. It becomes a cat and mouse game. So then teams would start to sit on your flank options and basically try to give you that that shot from the top. So they're getting into that diamond setup where they'll, they'll be sitting on Matthews on one flank. They're sitting on Marner on the other flank. You know, JT's covered at the net and suddenly, yeah, you've got uh, Morgan with the puck and that may not necessarily be your, your best shooting option. So at the end of the day, the, you go back to what are the strengths of the players that play for the Maple Leafs? You've got Austin Matthews is probably one of the best goal scorers, if not the best goal scorer in the NHL at the moment. And you've got Mitch Marner, who's probably one of the best distributors with the puck and one of the best playmakers with the puck. So the idea of you're trying to set up your power plays, A, get shots from um, Austin, and B, put Mitch in positions where he can distribute the puck and find his teammates in good spots. T- JT's is obviously awesome around the net. Nylander's versatile, can do lots of different things. You know, it doesn't sometimes get enough credit. Um, but in general, it's trying to put the guys in the position where they have strength. And you go back even historically, so if you remember back in the Jim Hiller, Mike Babcock days when Jim was running the power play, in Austin's first time in the NHL, he wasn't even playing his flank one timer. He wasn't comfortable coming in. He'd always played his offside. You beat me to always, the
1: question. You beat yeah. Like, so yeah,
2: he was always coming in. He and he wasn't comfortable playing his flank one timer for his first couple of years in the league. And you know, I know it was a, a bit to a, the fan chagrin that he wasn't put into <laughs> his one time spot. Um, but then, you know, to Austin's credit, he went away, worked with Darryl Belfry, came back the next year, I think it was in 1920 with, you know, one of the best one-timers in the league, um, which again, then kind of revitalized the power play, which then made it um, so you had that, that real dangerous threat. So then it kind of got to the point, okay, well, what's Mitch's role? So, you know, when Mitch was rolling downhill and he could um and feed it over to Matthews for the one-timer but when he's rolling downhill as uh, a righty in his position and Matthews is on the other flank that can be a tough pass to get it across the seam so sometimes the pieces haven't always felt right with uh, Matthews being a lefty and uh, Marner being a righty in the in the situation
1: yeah like seven year seven year ago Anthony would have been entirely upset if we did not talk about like not being on the one-timer side it was such a thing back then right like And I guess Uh, that makes sense. He wasn't like, he wasn't ready for that really.
2: A hundred percent. And it's one of those things that he, he's had a million skills um, and he just didn't feel comfortable in that skill set at that time. Um, And, and sometimes that's a little bit of inside baseball. Um, You know, I, I think that even as coaches, we may have wanted to put him there and, um, but he didn't feel that he could succeed in that spot at that time. Or there was conversations that that happened kind of behind the scenes, and ultimately the decision was made um until actually, if you remember the playoffs, I think it would have been in, in 2019 against the Bruins. Um, he did flip over. I think he did get a, a one-time goal maybe in game seven or game six, I forget which of the games. Um, but did get a um did get a little bit more comfortable. But again, once you're in the playoff series, then you're getting into the cat and mouse then you're getting into finding spots finding spaces doing something different because you've already played them multiple times and you know in the, in those years we were playing we knew we were playing Boston 8 weeks before the um you know the series started so it was a matter of trying to to figure out all the margins before we ever got there
1: do you think like just speaking of that like the maybe not ready for the one timer we kind of talked about maybe like the lack of the booming point shot like one of the one of the common threads between playoff runs or if you want to call it first round exits for the Leafs is like the power play has like traditionally struggled a little bit do you think like that is kind of compounded come playoff time where it's teams are gaming up on this like usually like just being able to hammer the puck essentially and getting it through when it's so much tighter and the checking is so much more difficult like maybe probably makes things easier and maybe confounded it
2: Uh, to a certain extent I mean it is it's everyone there's no secrets by the time you get to playoffs everyone knows exactly um you know what everyone does as a star player it's always hard enough in the regular season because they see your highlights more often they're probably more familiar than you know if you're matthew Nyes, you can get away with something because there's might be some unfamiliarity there they don't know your you know your two main moves well by the time the playoffs come around we've pre-scouted we know every single move we know what side of the bed you sleep on um you know kind of every little habit about the uh the opposition players so it definitely does take it a, uh take it away a little bit but i'm not willing to kind of to put any blame on an individual shot or anything like that just it it, it all comes down to being completely honest There's just the margin for yeah. is so small um, it's, not, you
1: know, it's not even to blame just like you said like yeah the margins. it's just yeah
2: it's one of those things it's the margins are so small it's a post here it's a bounce there it's uh um you know your expected goals may look great but it, it just doesn't convert and um you know you don't get the time to rebound because you don't make it to the second round um you know talking to uh Joel Quenville a uh, friend of mine he talked about with the the three Stanley cups he won in Chicago and uh, just the circumstances that go into winning and you know one year maybe uh you know you you didn't deserve to win um round one but the referee really blew a call in game seven and it allowed you to move on to round two. And then round two, their starting goalie, who was their best player, got hurt. And then you make it through round two. And then round three was a great matchup. And then round four, well, you know, the Eastern Conference is weak that year. Um, So you end up winning the cup and it's just, you know, a whole bunch of circumstance um, that leads to that. You know, obviously you have to be successful. You have to put yourself in the best position to succeed. Um, But there's a million things that go into it. But yeah, it, it definitely does affect it the more pieces you have, and that's where Washington was so dangerous for years, when you had the the dangerous shot in the middle with Oshie, the bomb up top um, with Carlson, the one-timer on the weak side with uh, Backstrom, and then now you look at Tampa. I mean, unfortunately, my last two years in the NHL, we got eliminated by Tampa, and they just ate us alive in the power play each year. It's... You know, you you think you uh, get it all. You can't
1: uh, game plan Kucherov. You can't. Kucherov
2: just makes you look like an idiot all the time. Like, I feel bad for the goalies. You think he's going to pass, and then suddenly he rips one under the bar. Or you think he's going to shoot, and he puts one to point, and you're standing half up. It, It just makes everyone look like an idiot.
0: Andrew, one of the things I think is interesting about this power play unit is that the pieces, as you said, there's so much continuity with these guys. They play together for a long, long time, and it's about putting them in the right position to succeed. And somehow, this is a, a process taking—you know—it's taking years and years and evolution over time. And this year, one thing that interests me is Marner. Like you talk about Marner as a guy who is a truly elite level distributor. And there have been times when he's been asked to shoot a little bit more, more to keep defenses honest more than anything else. But this year, it's really fallen off the map. Like on the power play, he's got 8.7 shot attempts per 60, which is like a third of what Nylander, Tavares and Matthews are doing approximately the math. And last year it was, you know, 13.4, which isn't huge. But this new role is putting him in a position where there aren't a lot of shots for him on the power play. Do you see that as a positive because it's leaning into his passing first, which is what makes him so good? Or do you see that as an issue where the shots aren't getting distributed equally enough and it might make the power play more predictable?
2: No, I don't I don't think that would be a specific issue for me because, as you said, at the end of the day, Mitch isn't going to go into the Hall of Fame someday because of his shot. He, he's going to go in someday because of his playmaking ability and his ability to see plays. His, his hockey sense is just unbelievable. I'll never forget we are in Columbus, you know, in the middle of the season. He broke his stick, um, faked that his stick was okay, you know, kept playing with the broken stick, used it to block a shot lane. Um, the puck came to him. He kicked the puck to another player. Then as he was skating off the ice, he slammed his stick on the ice and acted like he broke his stick um as he was skating off the ice. And just his hockey <laughs> sense to be able to process all of that and be able to act was just – like unbelievable just the fact that like you if i break my stick i'm like oh crap there's 300 bucks like yeah i don't think he has to worry about that yeah my my day's (laughs) not bad but uh for him to be able to process all that information that's so is so valuable so no for him what he needs to do is he needs to to find um the goal scorers find jt willie and and um matthews and find them in good positions so you look at mcdavid like mcdavid really doesn't shoot a 10 and when he shoots a puck he's generally shooting the puck to deliver the puck to an outnumbered situation if he's shooting he's he's using a shot as a delivery method to get the puck into the slot to hyman to dry settle to nugent hopkins and to try and get the puck to that location so i don't think that that will be the issue
1: so one thing you guys kind of infamously did um we'll call it is you ran two power play units like it like legitimately there were nine players that first year where you know the influx of Matthews and Marner and and everyone and and you made the playoffs and the power play was ranked second in the league you had nine guys average at least two minutes per game on the power play like Jake Gardner of all people led the team in average power play time on ice per game was something like 232 a night so like it, it was a it was a true two unit split and now like they don't they don't come close. Like what's the, essentially, I guess, what's the, what's the pros and cons here of like, you, you have one unit or maybe spreading out talent for two. And, and in the least case I'll say it like you have a guy like Tyler Bertuzzi, for example, who is traditionally used to playing on the top power play unit. And now he's picking up the like 30 second scraps. Like, is there any sort of thought of like, you know, keeping guys like that, even Max Domi, who's used to having the puck way more on a stick than he has. And like, it's hard to keep those guys engaged when they're just it's like calling it second power play unit half the time is like a generous description it's like the shift like twenty seconds. yeah the it's a shift the shift that the penalty ends on yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah i mean that's a whole coaching philosophy um you know I, justin Bourne, I, I think has talked a little bit on his podcast a little bit but at times the Leafs can feel like an a team and a b team um yeah. i forget the exact way that he, he puts it but um you know, hey, there's the five guys and then there's kind of everybody else. Um, and, you know, I think that's a little bit of going back to Mike Babcock's coaching philosophy. Um, and it, it, you look back and it, that was Mitch Marner's first year in the league. That was Austin Matthews' first year in the league. It was William Neilander's first full year in the league. And they had cemented themselves as, you know, I'm 100% a number one power play. And then you have good veteran players, to be honest, like a Tyler Bozak, um, who had had a lot of success on the power play for the Toronto Maple Leafs. Um, for a lot of years. And and Jake Gardner, I mean, you talk about a shot, he could get a shot through, you could could see um, plays in the offensive zone. Um, So he had a lot of success in the offensive zone um, there. So uh, the idea between a two power play unit team is just hey, one team or one group's not having success. If you have kind of a, a one or a two, you know, then the other guys go out and you can get some competition between uh, you know, unit one and unit two. Uh, you know, that obviously doesn't happen um, when you have a, a situation like what Toronto has. And, you know, your point about, um, you know, ice time for Bertuzzi or for Adomia is fair um, in the sense that they're, they're used to getting those minutes, they're used to getting those opportunities um, in those situations. But um, obviously, Toronto's a philosophy perspective. They've decided that it's just more valuable to them to have Austin on the ice for 90 seconds versus. Um, you know, making um the other guys feel better and giving them the opportunity on the power play. So it's to be it's just uh, you know, coaches, you have to make decisions. And that's one of the, the decisions that obviously Sheldon and the coaching staff have made that um they feel that by having them all together, it's, it's going to give them their best opportunity. As well for their sake, they they may say um a lot of coaches will talk about the bump up shift and what comes after the power play and setting yourself up to to have success as soon as the power play ends. Um, So it might also be a way for them to set themselves up uh, for that. But I I like if you have um, enough players to do um, two power play units, great. Um, You know, to be honest, I think a lot of the top power plays and a lot of over the years, the last 10 years, whether it's the the lightning of recent years or the the capitals of years before, you have seen a lot of uh, PP1 and a clear PP2. Um, So I don't think the Leafs are necessarily on the wrong track or being selfish in doing this.
1: No, you guys were you guys were like the exact opposite. Like nobody was running it like you did in terms of two units and being super successful. Like that was really the rare thing. I mean, ultimately, like Matthews is the best goal scorer in the league right now. I don't think anyone would fight it. Like the law of averages of saying playing 90 seconds, you know, every power play, you're the best goal scorer in the world. Like it's probably gonna work out for you by and large. Like that's that's not a criminal thought by any means.
2: (laughs) And and you go back to the cap situation, though, and realistically, it was the the salary cap at the time that allowed us to do that because Matthews was a, you know, $900,000 player. All those guys were on entry-level deals. So you have your core players and that was pre JT. Um, so like the, it's not like today where the power play units, what, $45 million or $50 million on the ice. Each one of those power play units was like $20 million. Um, so realistically it was just, it, it was a way that the, the cap was spent on the team and Hey, there's argument, um, he made me with like a Leo Komarov type thing. I know these fans love to uh, to fight about Leo, but um, yeah, it was just a different right. philosophy. Um, that at that time and situation was the right uh, choice for us as a team.
1: We love Uncle Leo here. Like there's uh, there'll, there'll never be. He had to be <laughs> the most interesting man in the world. Like just on this as an aside, like he had to be. He was he, such a fan favorite. <laughs> he,
2: he was such an awesome guy. I Always, I joked with him that uh, he spoke I think five languages, but he spoke none of them well. So uh, just a fantastic human being and teaming, you know, I I know that there's arguments about uh, that type of guy or even a Ryan Reeves, but there definitely is value in, in having, um, you know, players of that type and, you know, hey, there's always a question about how much they should be paid and what the real um, worth is to the team. But, uh, you know, just being in the dressing room for a lot of years, there is a lot of value to having individuals around that to uh, uh, keep your top players in check
0: you can't pay uncle leo enough to be honest and that is a name i did not expect we would get to today but i'm glad we did (laughs) uh the other side of the coin of this discussion is the penalty kill and for the leafs it's it's a less sexy discussion because they have all this offensive firepower at the top of the lineup they expect to be one of the top power play units in the nhl they usually have been the penalty kill they're they were good last year, 80%. This year, 78.2%. We're also coming to you guys in the immediate aftermath of a game where they gave up a couple power play goals. So it kind of, it messes with that number a little bit. There's a lot of personnel inconsistency this year. Like last year, you had Brody, Hole, and Camp. They all played 50% or more of the power play, uh, sorry, of the penalty kill minutes. This year, it's just Brody. You're getting a lot of different forwards in there. I think I want to start, Andrew, by asking you, again, sort of a broader, more philosophical question, and that's what your thoughts are on including high-level offensive players who don't have a lot of experience onto the penalty kill, because that was a big storyline for the Maple Leafs coming into the year, bringing Matthews onto it quietly. They brought Nylander onto those units as well, and you could kind of quibble with the results either way, but I think that's probably the most interesting thing going on with the Maple Leafs penalty kill, so I wanted to start there.
2: Yeah, no, that's a a great question. To be honest, it's been a little, it's been an issue for, to be honest, for years. Um, So, going back to basically the JT era of the team, and you look at the top three centermen um, for the Leafs, historically, the Leafs haven't had one of their top three centermen kill penalties, which for the longest time, um, it was the only team in the NHL that didn't have one of their top three centermen killing penalties. So, yeah, you're not always going to have a Bergeron or a Taze. Um, a one, you know, clear number one centerman or a Kopitar who's going to be able to be a two-way guy or Barkov, I guess, even, who can kill penalties. But the fact that you're getting down to not one of your top three centermen is a penalty killer, um, that becomes a, a big issue just with roster construction. And that's where David Camp came in and made a big impact on the Leafs is you bring a guy in and it, he's specifically good at that. And, you know, going back to my time with the Leafs, that's where we traded for Boyle. We traded for uh Plikianic, and you felt like you were always trying to fill in that that penalty kill defense or sorry, penalty kill centerman spot. Um, to be honest, if you were to ask my personal opinion, I'd say in hindsight, we probably should have started using uh, Matthews and and um even Nylander on the penalty kill earlier and had that experience for them earlier in their career. Um, you know, if it were my call back in 2018 type thing. I think in hindsight, I, I should have pushed for that more myself because um, I think that you do have to have top players um, being able to do that. You, it's not something they're going to do all the time, but it's just it's tough to always rely on other guys um, um, to be able to do that for you. So it, it's definitely a constant issue with the, the way that this Leafs roster is built that you can't have that, that solid um, two-way centerman uh, when you have – and to be honest, Austin really is, I think, a solid two-way centerman his defensive play is good. Yeah. Um, when he, when he real dials into the game, he's as big and as strong as physical physical and as hard to play against as anybody in the NHL. So, um, you know, I, I, I think that that is potentially an answer. I know that there's some analytics that'll say, Hey, you shouldn't take away any, any of his five on five ice time or his PP ice time um, to play him on the penalty kill because he has more value to the team um otherwise but i still think that you know there, there's an opportunity for him to be involved in the penalty kill as well as they have done a better job in the last few years um in filling in with guys like camp who who are solid penalty killers do you think One there's a it...
0: situational component to that too like for example in the rangers game on tuesday night they started with matthews and nylander when they had a penalty kill with six minutes left in the game when they're down in the game. And that's not a unit they normally start with. They almost always start with Kampf and Marner uh, or perhaps Yarncroak. And so do you think that that can also be like while Matthews sort of learns this – part of the game, which he has, as you said, he has the, absolutely has the tools to be a good penalty killer. There's no reason why not. Um, that could be a consideration where you say, okay, this is a normally our penalty killing group, but in certain game situations, we're going to lean on a different one and take a few more chances and try and steal one back
2: a hundred percent. And he's got just the dynamic to be able to change the game at any strength. He's just such a, a powerful player and even uh, a as well. Um, there's just different, not every penalty kill is going to be created equal. There's going to be the ones where you're up by a goal with three minutes left. And to be honest, you're, you're probably going to want camp laying down and blocking a shot. And to be honest, I don't want Austin laying down and, you know, game 27 against the Rangers and blocking a shot. Um, so every one is going to be different and kind of your incentive. But the idea is that, you know, when push comes to shove and you're playing Tampa in the second round, that um, he can go on the ice and that he You know, something happens to Camp and Camp is out of the uh, lineup or Yarncrows out of the lineup or Marner's whatever um, in the penalty box. He can be there and he can, you know, be able to do that and be a part of it. So I I think that they're they're trying to get to the right place. And it it doesn't mean that he has to do it every night. You don't want him getting hit with a shot, um, you know, that he doesn't need to get hit with just to, uh, you know, save one penalty, kill, go home in the uh, middle of November. But at the end of the day, you want to continue to build them as a player to, to be able to put them in that position. If you need him down the road.
1: One of the, like the Leafs penalty kill so far to me is basically a tale of two, right? Like it's before Sweden and after Sweden, like before Sweden, it was terrible. It was one of the worst penalty kills in the league. They went to Sweden and, you know, it's kind of looked at and you can kind of almost hear it on the coaching staff, like the concern of like, we're going to go to Europe and it's a few weeks. And how does that, know domino effect our season and so on but they got all this practice time and basically since sweden i don't know how the numbers by getting scored on twice last night impacted but going into that game they had the second best penalty kill in the league since sweden and honestly the main thing like we talk about the fours but the main thing i've really noticed is the defenseman challenging the half wall like they've really become aggressive on that side of things of having you know, the Simon Benoit, the William Lagasins of the world, like come up and like actively challenge these guys, which they sort of had this previously with Justin hole. Like if nothing else, he was good at standing in the lane and, and blocking that. And then they lost him and there was like a weird adjustment to start this season, but they like a lot, like most of their penalty kill really drives from that, like challenging the half wall. And I think every team in the league basically is like, how aggressive can you possibly be? without getting if a team strings together three passes you're probably beat
2: well and that gets back to the where this conversation all started is why is much more understanding the corner because teams are being more aggressive with their d challenging they're challenging up to the half wall so um, if you're challenging too far up the half wall there's no low up play option um, then that's a great play Um, and a lot of your pkl uh, people forget that the penalty kill is a skill just as much as um the power plays a skill, you know, going back to the Ron Hainsey days of the Toronto Maple Leafs as well. Another uh, relic. Great 100%. names
0: today on the podcast. Yeah, getting all back.
2: So Ron Hainsey, uh, his, his specific skill is um coming out in that lane, the Justin Hall coming out, killing that lane, being big, um, being able to kill that play, get that puck down the ice and having the right mix of D um to be able to do that. Cause there's a lot of trigger points in a um, penalty kill where, that something happens on the penalty kill, and now you're looking to kill the play and get the puck down the ice and end the end zone pressure. And that's where the defensemen, when they're big and strong and they can kill that play and change possession, that's where it really comes into play. And um, the Leafs definitely do seem to be doing a better job of it. I'm not sure if they've made tactical changes since they went to Sweden, but um, you know, even something as as little as uh, the coach change. We've seen in St. Louis this week, they haven't made any actual systems changes in de- in their defensive zone coverage, but they focused way more on pressure in the puck and they're focusing on-, on disrupting the play and trying to kill plays earlier.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think honestly, the biggest thing that happened with that practice time was like syncing up properly. There were just too many breakdowns where like the forwards weren't playing off of each other. You know, like one guy was going one, you know, one guy would go pressure the half wall and the guy in the middle of the ice wouldn't read where he had to go as a result of the guy pressuring the half wall and it would just leave things wide open. Like they just tightened up and, and synced up in terms of guys going to the right spots and moving off of each other, which is what you have to do on the penalty kill and like finding those things out. And then you eventually, like, again, you had the D man, I think like Sheldon was basically like bemoaning the lack of penalty killers on this team to start the, start the season. Like he referenced it a number of times in press conferences, like, where are the penalty killers on this team, like so, I think that they find like just they started teaching guys like how to kill penalties. Like Noah Gregor was not really a penalty killer prior to like the past like month of his life.
2: Yeah, that's uh, that's obviously a, a very common thing in hockey, and especially as the salary cap continues to be tight, and um, you know the way the player players are paid for points, um, you you tend to of less guys, you, you can't afford to have that, you know, really good penalty killer that you're overpaying um, because he just gets pushed out. So you're getting the guy that's 800,000 that may not have as much experience in that. But, uh, you know, the other thing too, that, that you just, I've seen happen so much is sometimes you just need the two weeks where you just don't get scored on. And it can be special teams can be as much mental as, you know, we, we've seen Jack Campbell go through it um, in the goaltending perspective. Um, I'll admit uh, I have three sons that are all goalies um so a a 13 and 9 and a 7 year old all
1: you went three for three on goalies like we could have a whole episode just about that
2: three for three on goalies (laughs) and uh so geez because of that actually in uh, my last year in toronto i actually took up playing goalie because i'd never done it myself and the one thing i found is that like if you say the first i'd always heard our goalie coach say like hey if you save the first 10 shots you feel so much better and you play better but, like, if you save – honestly, if you save the first 10 shots, you feel like you're going to get a shutout. And if you let in one of the first three shots, you feel like you're going to lose 10 nothing every night. And sometimes just the special teams are no different. Like, you start the year, maybe just you play Boston, or you play, like, a couple of really elite power plays a couple of times in a row, and you just keep on getting scored on. And, you know, maybe it's your goalie, or maybe it's this or that. Um, and so sometimes you just need to, hey, it's a week of practice – you know, I think they played Ottawa and uh, Minnesota, who decent power plays, but aren't going to set the world on fire. And then you come back and get a little bit more practice. And suddenly you've gone two weeks without having a negative video meeting about getting scored on the penalty kill. And, you know, suddenly you're feeling better about life and and feeling better with the penalty kill. and You can I, kind of get that as a reset.
1: I'm sure that's compounded even more here in Toronto, just given the market and the attention and the media. Like, you know, like, yeah, you guys are you're a penalty important. kill. Yeah.
2: This would a massive pain in the butt for sure. Yeah. You just how, make everything more difficult. Not not uh, us specifically, the
1: yeah, general yeah, yeah. us. How how different what like like what what difference is that in terms of like I'm watching, I don't know if you saw like Devin Taves called out Colorado yesterday. They lost, and he said, like, guys are kidding themselves if they think they're playing well on this team. Like he said, like we have 14 guys going and six that aren't. And yeah. And like, I almost, I, I watched it and I, I almost kind of chuckled. I was like, wow, wow. Imagine if, imagine if like Mitch Marner came out and said that about the team, like that'd be like, we might even have to cancel this episode. Like you, you like, everyone would just be going on about it. The rest yeah, of the sorry, week. Sorry,
0: Andrew. We're, we're cutting, well, yeah. <laughs> cutting all <Yeah>. this <laughs> like, stuff. Like, like Mitch called out Forget like six X's guys
1: out of 20 <laughs> and like, it'd be nuts. Whereas like in Toronto, I kind of, like I thought about it and, and said to myself, like, You almost have to do the exact opposite where you kind of have to make it like a super positive place because they're just getting it from all angles, all times. And so like the room has to be super together because you can't uh, afford to do things like that.
2: Yeah. Like, honestly, it's one of those things that, you know, Mike Babcock always used to say, listen to country music and watch the hunting channel. But like, (laughs) I could never listen to whatever Leafs lunch or, or whatever, like the the hockey central, that kind of stuff. It's just, it's a ton of noise. And like, it, it really gets to you. It affects your mental health. It affects um, how you feel about yourself, how you feel about the team. It's just a whole level of noise. Then I go to work for the Florida Panthers and, you know, (laughs) we've got three beat writers and if that, and like, you know, local TV coverage and, you know, things can happen and it doesn't turn into a news story and it's just a completely whole different beast. So, um, you know, that that is advice that, you know, at the time it's, you know, it's a funny line. Hey, you know, watch the hunting channel, listen to country music, but you, you do need that. You need to go back. You need to spend time with your family. Um, you know, and, and try to drown drown out the noise as much as possible because everything just gets absolutely amplified and amped up. And every decision, there's you know hours and hours of content, and that's nothing. Uh, there's nothing bad about that because the uh, you know the dream is going um, to be the win when you finally win. It's going to be as sweet as uh, as ever, but uh, in the in the uh, process, it's just a little extra work all the way through.
1: It's well, I think t- it- to the to the taste point, like to that degree, it's almost like the pressure has to come from inside because it's maybe, you know, like, you know, you're in Florida, even if, even if you do get a little bit of coverage with some criticism, it's, it's not, you're not going to feel that heat, but in Toronto, you're like the pressure is from primarily the outside. Like you kind of have to bond a little bit more internally. Like you, like you, if you're Devin Taves on Toronto, you don't need to call guys out. I'm sure they're hearing it six ways from Sunday if they're all playing bad.
2: No, hundred percent. My first experience, kind of in big hockey, was uh, I went from the University of New Brunswick, which is Canadian university of hockey, which is good hockey, but hey, it's you know a good game. You got thirty five hundred fans, and uh, my first uh, job working with hockey candy, I was doing the World Juniors in Edmonton and Calgary, and suddenly there's twenty thousand people, and you know you win, you're the biggest hero; you lose, you're the biggest uh, you know villain in Canada. And um, it, Toronto is just like the World Juniors every single day, so you're taking a bunch of twenty year olds. And this was back in 2012 when Twitter uh, was first coming out. And, you know, these kids would make the team and they'd have 20 Twitter followers. And then the next day, they've got 10,000 Twitter followers. Well, what do you think that does to your mental health and your mental well-being and everything that that goes into it? So it's a whole other beast in Toronto. Um, But again, I always go back to um, whether it's Sheldon, whether it's Mike Babcock, whether it's Randy Carlisle. Um, everyone just always wants to win everyone is you know coaches make decisions they could be right they could be wrong but everyone wants to win that cup everyone wants to have that um, that parade you know it's a, a big joke in Toronto with that parade but we saw what the Raptors how exciting it's going to be Toronto's you know such a great fan base such a great um, city um, such passionate fans it, it's going to be exciting uh, and you know I, I hope that they can get it done someday.
0: That's not what we expected as a wrap. I think it's a perfect summary for all the Maple Leafs fans listening. Andrew, it's been a pleasure to talk to you about the X's and O's and even, you know, dig up some of the old names in recent Toronto Maple Leafs history that we haven't thought about in some time. We really appreciate you joining the show.
2: No problem. Thanks for having me, guys.
1: Thanks, Andrew.
2: Thanks. Everyone is looking at me. I just wanna know we're down by three. Look inside yourself, I know what I see.